Second Samuel. We're in chapter 22 of Second Samuel, in fact, and um, we're approaching the end of our study in this Old Testament book. I'm thinking pretty seriously about moving from the Old Testament studies that we've been doing on Thursday nights to uh, something from the New Testament. And uh, one of my thoughts is perhaps the book of Ephesians or 1 Corinthians. So I, uh, I haven't made that decision yet, but I will be um, finishing this book next week, I believe, Lord willing. And then we'll have made a decision on where we go to next. But here in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22, the author is recording for us in a historical book one of the hymns of Israel. Almost verbatim, it is a copy of Psalm 18. There are a few exceptions, not very many, uh, but for the most part, it is uh, Psalm 18 pretty much in its entirety here in chapter 22 of Second Samuel. So David apparently wrote this, most theologians believe, at an earlier age, because it does tell us in the introduction that he uh, uh, wrote these or spoke these words uh, in this song, and it was during the time that he was delivered from all of his enemies and from Saul. Now, of course, that implies that he wrote that fairly early on, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, some people believe that he wrote it at an elderly age before he uh, uh, died, but uh, there's no real credible evidence to support that either. So, um, in any case, it is one of the more lengthy psalms um, that David had written, and you know that David wrote very many psalms. Um, not all of the psalms that we have in the book of Psalms are attributed to David, but the majority of them are. And so David is a prolific writer, and he is also uh, one who has great talent in being able to put words together that are so beautiful and so meaningful. And remember that several of the psalms that David did indeed write were prophetic psalms of the Messiah that was to come. Uh, and he, remember, had a covenant that God had given him um, that implied to him very strongly that he would have a son from his own loins that would sit on the throne forever. And so that covenant had not been fulfilled in David's time, obviously, nor has it yet been fulfilled even up to our day. But it will soon be fulfilled. And the one, obviously, that we know will do that is Jesus Christ on his return. And there is a bit of a place or two in this psalm that implies that reign. Uh, but we're going to look tonight uh, at chapter 22 and a portion of chapter 23, which also is a word from David, somewhat of a prophecy, uh, but a very, very important statement that he made at the end of his life. We know that for a fact because it tells us that those words in chapter 23 that we will be reading are some of the final words of David the king. So let's begin. Chapter 22, verse 1 says, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. 
my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Notice how many times he uses the word my. Possessive pronoun. It means that he is taking the Lord God as his God. And the descriptives that he uses here, amazing. My rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my strength, my high tower, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. What an amazing list of beautiful phrases that David puts together in the very beginning of this psalm to recognize the fact that his God is indeed a God that he owns to be his own God. It's not a rock. It's not a deliverer. It's not a strength or a person in whom I can trust. It is my God. And that's important. The very, very first line of that second verse, the Lord is my rock, it reminds me of the strength and the ability of God to um, protect. And all throughout the scriptures, we, ref we see the Lord referred to as a rock or the rock, in this case, my rock. And it certainly is something that we should apply to ourselves as well. All of these descriptives, my rock, put your name in there. The Lord is Norman's rock. The Lord is Sandy's rock. The Lord is Charlie's rock. The Lord is Robin's rock. The Lord is Valerie's rock. He is our rock. And, you know, we sing the song Rock of Ages. Well, that's also something that uh, we're reminded of is the fact that he's eternal. He is a rock upon which we are able to stand. He has placed us upon a rock that is higher than all of us, and that's sure foundation, that rock, that solid stone. To some, it's a rock of offense, but to us, it's the rock of salvation, and it is Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty, as our rock. He is our fortress and our deliverer. He takes care of every need. He has been, to David, such a very wonderful God, in spite of the fact that David did not do everything perfectly well. And that's one of the things that we're going to be, I think, focusing on here tonight is the fact that this is a book about grace and mercy with regard to David. Over and over again, we have seen through our study in First and Second Samuel how David just simply did not do it well all the time. And his great sins with Bathsheba and against Uriah, the Hittite, and other sins that he committed that we haven't even looked at that will be covered in other studies. Those were forgiven. He knew that forgiveness. Psalm 32 is a wonderful psalm of praise, thanking the Lord for his faithfulness uh, and for his forgiveness of all our iniquities, our transgressions, our sins. He is our rock. He is our fortress, our deliverer. And he is the God of our strength. We can trust in him. Not only does he give us strength, but he is strength that he will always be depended on to provide that strength whenever we need it. He is a God of strength to us. When we are weak, then he is strong, we're told by the Apostle Paul. 
He is our shield and our, the horn of our salvation. Other places, again, the rock of our salvation, but the horn of our salvation is appropriate as well. Our stronghold, our refuge. A place of refuge is so very, very needful for those of us who realize that we are sinners in need of God's grace. We need a place of refuge to go to whenever we sin, and that refuge is Jesus Christ. He is the place of refuge for the believers today, and He is our stronghold, and He is our Savior, and He makes us to be forgiven and redeemed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live lives that are godly lives. That is the wonderful thing about our God in this first passage section of uh, the the second uh, Samuel passage of chapter 22, where all of these descriptives we can apply to ourselves as David applied to himself. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. And my cry entered his ears. David had times of very serious despair and doubt. Remember, there was one point where David even admitted that he was fearful of dying, not being able to see the fulfillment of what God had promised. It was at a time when Saul was hot on his heels and he was running from Saul, constantly running from the king who wanted to kill him. Over and over again, the Lord delivered him. And in those desperate times, David says, I cried out to my God in my distress. I cried out to my God and he heard my voice. What a wonderful thing it is for us to apply those truths that he has revealed about himself and his relationship to God. And those same truths can be and should be applied to us. When we are in distress, when we are in despair of life even, we can call out to him and know that he hears our cry. He's the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he does hear the voice of his people. He heard David and delivered him from all of his fears. In verse 8 he says, Then the earth shook. He tells us here how it is that he saw the Lord doing on his behalf what only God could do to help him and to deliver him from the troubles that he was facing. The Lord says, or rather David says, the earth shook and and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry, he being God. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. David is describing some physical phenomena, something like a thunderstorm or a very severe uh, storm where clouds would cover the entire earth and lightning would flash all about them, the thunderclaps and all of the various things that were happening, the rainfall, so heavenly, and perhaps hail uh, as well. He's describing those in very, very flowerful terms in this passage to describe the God's presence in the time of David's greatest need. Because it is through this, apparently, 
the storm that apparently came upon suddenly that delivered David from the presence of Saul because the attack of Saul was thwarted by the physical phenomena that were taking place uh, in what would have been a very, very difficult encounter for David. Verse 14 continues and says, The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered His voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered, all at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. So David, again, is using some powerful terminology here, descriptives that really show the the fact that he has seen God in these natural events that may very well have been, indeed, supernatural Um, But they were events that David remembered as being definitive things that God has done in saving David from destruction. He goes on in verse 17 to describe more. He said, from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. And yes, Saul was an overwhelming uh, force of people that he had put together as an army to come against David, who only had some 600 men at his side. With a very few exceptions, David was outnumbered tremendously. And it is here that he's acknowledging the fact that God delivered him from impossible odds because they were too strong for me. And then in verse 19 it says, They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. God helped David by providing a place of refuge for him, a place where he could rest, a place where he could hide from the onslaught of Saul and other battles as well that David had to encounter while he was king. Those are also spoken of in this same psalm, as we will see later, But keep in mind, David is recognizing that in all of those events, he has remembered something of great importance. God was with him through it all. God never left him. God never let him fail or faint. God always provided for him. Verse 21 says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. That in his eyes is key to our understanding of what David is saying here. Certainly none of us can claim our own righteousness. None of us can proclaim ourselves to be clean of hands. None of us can say that we have not sinned. None of us can say that we're not worthy of God's judgment. David was saying those things. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. And he says in verse 22, I have not wickedly departed from my God. That is also key. David may have sinned, but he never departed from his God. We've spoken on that on more than one occasion, but it is so 
right for us to remember. This is the truth that has been imparted to us in the Word of God. David was forgiven by God. God knows our hearts. He knew David's heart. And the heart of David, although he was a sinful man, was a heart toward God. That's why the Bible calls him the apple of God's eye. That's why David is able to say the things that he's saying here, as in verse 24, I was blameless before him. I kept myself from my iniquities. But ending with, in verse 25, in his eyes. As far as God was concerned, because of God's forgiveness, because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, David was indeed righteous. David was indeed forgiven, cleansed of his sins. David was indeed blameless in God's eyes. David had no iniquity that God counted as being iniquity that was not already forgiven. That is grace. It's abundant grace. Amazing grace. It's the same amazing grace that saved a wretch like me and a saved a wretch like all of us. It's that amazing grace that continues to offer all of us forgiveness of our sins, cleansing from all our unrighteousness. It is the same God that we serve. There is no other God. Now he says in verse 26, speaking about God himself, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty, that you may bring them down. If David had been prideful, he would have been brought down. And God does not accept anyone who remains prideful, haughty, thinking of himself more highly than he ought or she. But look at the listing that he gives here with regard to, to God's attitude towards mankind. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. That's a fact. He does bless those who are merciful indeed. With the blameless, you will show yourself blameless. So he's just saying, those attributes that we know that you have, Lord, whenever we display them in our own lives, it pleases you. But with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. Now, in some translations, there are different words used in these passages, but they all have the same general meaning. But I'd like to remind you that God does not do anything devious, because anything that is devious would be evil, and God cannot do any wicked thing or any evil thing. So the word that David uses at the end with regard to God isn't the same word devious this time. It is translated in this version that I'm using as shrewd. And it just simply means you do respond rightly with a clear and decisive act uh, that you choose to do in response to the devious acts of men. Well, verse 29 continues now, and as we move forward through the psalm, Keep in mind that David has in the way that he writes a very interesting pattern that I want to make sure that we see here. Sometimes 
He talks in the first person. I have done this, or I have seen this. That's part of the song that he's writing here. Then he goes into the second person, talking about God. God has done this. You are my lamp. You can run against the troop. Now he's talking to God. So he talks about God in the second person. He has done this. He is my rock. He is my strength. He is my power. And in the third person, you, Lord God, have done these things on my behalf. You have saved me. You have redeemed me. All through the Psalms, you see David kind of moving back and forth between this, especially the second person and third person as he writes these wonderful Psalms. So verses 29 and following are a fine example of that. Listen carefully as we read through it. First of all, he starts in the third person. He says, For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Do you notice he switched persons here from the third, first to the second? He goes on in the second, in verse 32, he says, For who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? God is my strength. Now back to first person and power. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. Second person references. And he sets me on my high places. I love that passage, by the way. He sets me on my high places. He makes my feet perfect. My way is perfect. My feet like the feet of the deer. In some translations, it's hind's feet. Now, in Israel, they have an animal, much like our mountain goats in the West, in the Rockies, and that animal is known as the ibex. And it's probably what is being referred to when David writes in verse 34, he makes my feet like the feet of deer. The reason I bring that up is because that is one of the most sure-footed animals in God's creation. The mountain goat, like this ibex in Israel, are able to walk on crags of rock on very, very narrow footing, and they never miss a step. On sheer cliffs, they are able to navigate and move about freely, jumping from one cat over a chasm from one mountain cliff to another and landing precisely where they need to land in order to be able not to fall off the cliff. That is how sure-footed God has made you and me. And David is expressing that same thought here. So who is God except the Lord? Allah is not God. Buddha is not God. There are no other gods but Jehovah God. Or we like, I like to use Yahweh, the same word, but just a different uh, transliteration of the word of the original Hebrew. And it is important for us to realize that this God has no other gods before him. And he will not accept any other gods. So anybody who thinks otherwise needs to look at the Bible more closely and realize that God is a jealous God and he will not share his glory with another. Verse 35 says, He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. I don't know if any of you have ever done much archery, but there are 
several different kinds of bows that one could purchase today. And there are various strengths or power that is determined by the material that is used in the bow and the length of the bow and the design of the bow and string combination. They have various ways of determining the amount of pull that is attributed to a bow. Now, a trainer bow and arrow set would probably only be 15 to 20 pounds of pull, whereas a hunter would use somewhere around perhaps 40 or 40 pounds pull. Now, there are some bows that have a very easy pull up to a certain point, and then the remainder of the pull it requires a lot of strength to get it completely back to the place where you can release the arrow for its most effective travel speed and distance. Now, David here is talking about a bow of bronze. Now, if you have the King James, it says, I think, steel, but there was no steel in that day. It's a poor translation. But a bow of bronze is, bow of bronze, rather, is what David is referring to. It is a metal bow, and the pull strength would have to be, according to what I have read, and I'm not really sure if it's as accurate as it should be. You can look at it up this if you want on your own. But the pull strength would be somewhere between 60 and 75 pounds. That's huge. He gives David the strength to do that. David was a mighty man of war. And he was enabled by the Lord to pull the bow back and uh, even a bow of bronze. That's remarkable. He goes on in verse 36 and says, You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. That's a good line also. Your gentleness has made me great. Again, we're now in the third person. You enlarged my path under me, so my feet did not slip. Now he goes back to the first person. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. Most of these references are now not about Saul, but about the armies of the nations around him, primarily the Philistines. He continues to say in verse 39, And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet, for you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. Now remember, there came a time, we read about it last time in our study in chapter 21, where David was wearied to the point of exhaustion in a battle against the Philistines. Here he's saying, you have armed me with strength for the battle. He is saying this in the present tense, which means that this probably is a reference to a time period in David's early life, and it's very likely then that this psalm again was written early on in David's reign as king of Israel. Verse 40 says, For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. God provided David the strength to win the battles. God's always providing the way to accomplish great things for his glory. He never lets us do it in our own strength. If we try, we will fail. Simply said, without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. He says in verse 41, You have also given me the necks of my enemies, so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. 
Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I, I trod them like dirt in the streets and I spread them out. So David is, again, referring to the battles that he has won. He was victorious because God armed him with strength for the battle. And God helped him to subdue his enemies. He's always attributing his victories to God. So should we. Verse 44 continues, he says, You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. Not only is it in battles that David has been experiencing great victories, but also with regard to the people under him, the people under his authority as king of the nation. There were those who were opposing David throughout his years. And he's recognizing here again that it is God who has delivered him from the strivings of his people. You have kept me as a head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. I find that to be most interesting as well. Remember, the king of Tyre came down early on in David's reign and actually built the palace that David lived in. And so there were other kings who came with presents all from around the various areas of the world that was then known, and many of them David didn't even recognize. You may, be, may remember a story about Solomon when he was king later, and the queen of Sheba came. She didn't receive an invitation from Solomon, but she came from a great distance apparently because she had heard of the wonderful things that were going on in Jerusalem under Solomon's reign. And so that was also happening with David's reign as well, apparently. Many kings were coming, and he didn't know them. But the heads of nations had arrived to give him tribute. A people I have not known, he says, in the latter part of verse 44, shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. So they may have been planning an attack, but when they realize the power of David's army and the hand of God upon David's life, they flee. They run from their hideouts. And then he says, one of my favorite lines again in the psalm, Psalm 18 and also here, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. You may be familiar with a song we have been singing from time to time in our Sunday morning services. And that psalm is a combination of two of the verses we've just read tonight. I will call upon the Lord, verse 4, who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. And then verse 47, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock, blessed be the God of my salvation. That's a great song to sing. And it comes from Psalm 18, or from this passage in Second Samuel chapter 22. But the Lord lives. That's a fact. The Lord always will be the Lord. He lives. And that is such a great thought to me, encouragement to me, that God will not depart. God will not leave us or forsake us. The Lord lives. So we can say with David, blessed be my rock. He's a solid rock. He is a rock of my salvation and yours, as well as David's. Verse 48 continues and says, It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. 
Again, he's going back to the third person saying, You, Lord God, have saved me. Therefore, I will give thanks to you. What a way to, to just communicate with God as you're thinking about the things that God has done for you. He has done great and marvelous things for all of us. And when we contemplate those very, very wonderful truths that David has outlined for us in this psalm, we too should be filled with praise to the point where we will begin to say, Lord, you have been so faithful to me. You have been my rock. You have been my redeemer. You are my salvation. You are my hope. I put my trust in you. All of those things come from the Psalms that we've been reading. I hope that you faithfully do read the Psalms of David and the Psalms of Asaph and other of the Psalm writers throughout the 150 books of Psalms, there are treasures there to be found. I love reading the book of Psalms, and I do it because I always find something that encourages me, something that blesses me, something that gives me hope, something that gives me assurance that He is still with me, that He wants to bless me. That is why the Psalms are so meaningful to me. I hope it is that way for you as well. Finally, in verse 51, he says, he is a tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Now that is a reference to the covenant because that is something that God had promised David, that he would indeed not only anoint David, but his descendants forevermore. And yes, all of the descendants of David who reigned in Jerusalem, from the time of David until the time of the Babylonian captivity, all of them had opportunity to receive the many blessings of God, and a few of them did, but not all of them, unfortunately. But yet, in spite of that, because God in his covenant said, if they sin, I will punish them for their sin, speaking of the sons of David. However, there is going to come one who will sit upon the throne of David forever. And that is the one that David is here referring to in verse 51, to David and his descendants with that great word forevermore. The reign of the kings of David's dynasty will end with Jesus Christ our Lord, and he will indeed fulfill that which has been spoken. Now again, as I said earlier, we'll read the first seven verses of chapter 23 before we close tonight. And I want to do that to give a bit of a contrast. If indeed David wrote chapter 22, the Psalm 18, in his earlier days, these seven verses were written or recorded, spoken by David in his latter years. As a matter of fact, it tells that very specifically in verse 1 of chapter 23, where it says, now these are the last words of David. Now that doesn't mean it's the very last words he spoke and then he died, because he did have many other words that he spoke to his son, Solomon. And we know that God used Solomon greatly as the second king of the Davidic dynasty. But here he's talking about the fact that David spoke these things prophetically, and it was recorded because David was indeed a prophet of God as well as a king. It says, Thus says David the son of Jesse, Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, 
I love the fact that David gives himself credit as being a psalmist, a writer of songs, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He actually elevates that to a higher position of the fact that he was king. Although it does say here that he is the anointed of the God of Jacob. Remember, he was anointed to be king. But it was a fact that he was a psalmist, a writer of songs, that in David's mind became of great importance because that gave him a closeness to his God that lasted throughout his days. So in verse 2, it tells us, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. David is speaking, and he's saying, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. So he's saying, God gave me these words of prophecy to speak. By the power of the Holy Spirit, David did indeed speak many, many different ways through the Spirit to the people of God. And here it is that he's speaking these words because the Spirit of the Lord has spoken by David the king. It says in verse 3, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. God is saying, this is what is expected of his king. The one who rules over men must be just. God spoke that to David. And again, we're seeing that what he is telling us here is something that David himself wasn't fully able to completely do 100% of the time. But there is coming one who will. And it is really very important for us to realize that this, although it's speaking to David by the Spirit of God, it's also speaking through David about Jesus, the Savior, the one who is to come. So, take note of the fact that that one who rules must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Oh, how I wish that we had some rulers in the world today that were doing such as this. But then he says, and again, verse 4, He shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. That can be no other than Jesus. That can be nobody else but a perfect Son of God who is coming to reign. And David now admits to this in verse 5 by saying, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? Now, I do have to tell you that I'm very much aware of a different translation. The New American Standard starts with a question that basically says, Is not my house so with God? And it seems to imply with that question that David thought he had arrived to that status of one who would be the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain because he was truly a just king. However, at the end of verse 5, both the New American Standard and the New King James and other translations end with the question, will he not make it increase, referring to his own reign. What David is admitting is, 
He has not arrived to this. And so the way that it is written in the New King James, I believe personally, is a better way of interpreting what was written. As a matter of fact, in the original Hebrew, where my translation says, although my house is not so with God, David writes, for not so with my house. There's no punctuation, there's no question mark, there's no way to know whether or not it was a question or a statement, except for within the context that we find it. And so when we put it all together, verse 5 seems most likely to imply that David was not quite arriving to that place of perfection, and that would be an honest assessment of any one of us, but yet he has made with him, David, God has made with him a covenant, an everlasting covenant, and it is ordered in all things and secure. It is a certainty. It will take place. It will come. For this is all my salvation, he says, and all my desire. David's desire was for God to be completely blessed by him and by all who would follow him. So here we have this wonderful statement that he ends with, but the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft, and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly banned with fire in their place. It's a warning to the rebellious, a warning to the rejectors of God. Have you ever picked up a thorny weed you know, we have some weeds in our house. Every once in a while, start growing wildly, and I'll come along, and I'll just take them by the hand and pluck them out. Easy to do for most of them. But there's one particular weed that grows in my yard that I have to be very careful with, and I found that out the hard way. I ended up grabbing that weed, and it was a thorny weed, and when I touched it, it hurt. And so I went and got some gloves, and I pulled it out with protection. That's kind of what David is talking about here. The sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. They're a nuisance. They are trouble, and they're hard to get rid of, but they must be taken care of. That's why he says in the last verse that we just read, but the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. There is coming a judgment for the ungodly. And that is the truth. Remember Psalm 73. Asaph wrote a very important psalm that asked a question about the ungodly. He observed the fact that the ungodly were very successful. The ungodly were doing well. They weren't getting sick. They were strong. They were healthy. They were prosperous. And he was struggling. He was wondering why he had to work so hard and not get anywhere in his life in terms of being the kind of prosperous person that those guys were. And he began to question, why is this, Lord? What is going on here? It was hurting him so much. And he thought, I'm having such a hard time dealing with this. And then Asaph opened his eyes to the truth. And he said, then I saw their end. And when he realized that their end was destruction, as David here points out, then he knew that it's okay. The righteous may suffer. The unrighteous may prosper in this life. But in the end, God's judgment will prevail. And God's justice will prevail. 
So we, like David, can say these same wonderful things that David has proclaimed throughout this great psalm. And we should, daily. We should give God praise as David gave him praise. We should thank God for his wonderful mercies to the children of men, the goodness of God, his loving kindness. Thy loving kindness is better than life, David said. My lips shall praise thee, and I will lift up my hands unto the Lord. I will sing unto the Lord a new song. I will sing praises unto my God. My meditation of him shall be great, and I will be glad in the Lord. All throughout the Psalms, David lifts up his voice in adoration and praise, and so wonderful it is for any of us to do so as well, especially in these last days where we know that time is short. Let us live for him and glorify him and praise his holy name always together. Amen.